0: Hello. Thank you for listening to Factor Fiction, a mostly true crime history podcast. Please be aware that in each episode, one fictional detail has been inserted. At the end, all will be revealed. Now, on with the show. New York's Daily News reported on December 3rd, 1923, that the sea yielded evidence of a grim, rum-running tragedy yesterday when the bodies of two men strapped with life preservers, were washed ashore at Seabright, New Jersey, together with about 50 cases of scotch whiskey. The bodies, lying less than 10 feet from where the whiskey cases bobbed like corks in the shallows, authorities believe they were carrying a cargo of whiskey in a small boat when the craft sprang a leap. The men probably just had time to put on life preservers and leap into the deep before the boat sank. Nicknamed Liquor Island, Long Island was a major site for bootlegging and rum running for the New York metropolitan area during Prohibition. With its proximity to major markets and coastal communities for easy transit, Suffolk County was awash in illegal hooch. Smugglers bringing cases of booze from offshore often secretly hid product temporarily in local garages and sheds, leaving a bottle as a thank you. Coded communication crisscrossed the country on shortwave radios, arranging sales and logistics. Violence from criminal outfits disrupted previously quiet towns, as locals too often were swept up in dangerous, unintentional engagements with bootleggers. Hi there, Fact or Fiction fans. I'm your host, Laura, and I'm back with the Fact or Fiction author series. Today, author and historian Amy Kasuga-Folk is here to tell us about her book, Run Running in Suffolk County. Tales from Liquor Island. Her narrative includes specific detailed accounts of the smugglers, the authorities, and the community living on Long Island who were all caught up in the business of supplying illegal booze to a thirsty nation. Amy is the manager of collections for the Oyster Ponds Historical Society, as well as the manager of collections for the Southold Historical Society and the town historian for Southold. She is also the past president of the Long Island Museum Association, and the Region 2 Co-Chair of the Association of Public Historians of New York State. She is the co-author of several award-winning books focusing on the history of Southold. She's here to share the unbelievable story of Suffolk County during the Prohibition era. As always on the show, Amy will infuse her factual story with one fictional detail. Listen carefully because it's tricky to know if what you hear is fact or fiction. Ready to play? amy welcome to factor Fiction. thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for inviting me i'm really excited to speak to you and learn more about the rum runners in suffolk county but before we talk about your book i'd like to learn a little bit about you i know you've worked as a historian primarily on long island
1: are you from that area yeah i originally was born and grew up in nassau county um Long Island's actually divided into three parts there. So there's a part that we all call the city, which is Kings and Queens County. And then there's Nassau County and then Suffolk County. So I grew up in Nassau County and moved to Suffolk County. So I'm
0: imagining in my head, I'm I'm terrible geography. So the city is going to be the furthest south.
1: Is that right? Picture a fish in your head. Uh And the head of the fish is New York City. The body of the fish is divided between Nassau County and Suffolk County, with Suffolk County taking up most of the waist to the tail. Oh. And Nassau County is just a narrow section by the gills.
0: Okay. All right. that That's a very nice description. That's what Long Island looks like. We yeah. look like a fish. <laughs> now, I told you before we recorded, I know little to, I, I know almost nothing about Long Island and I've never been to New York. Let me tell you
1: a little bit about Long Island. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's about 120 miles long, and it looks like a fish. Uh-huh. At its biggest point, it's 23 miles wide. Oh. Um, the area actually includes eight other smaller islands that we just lump in as being part of Long Island, even though they're technically not attached. In 2023, Manhattan had 7 million people, just over 7 million people. Long Island had 8 million people. Want it. Oh. We are actually one third of all of New York state's population. Wow. Crowded down on this Island. We are the 17th most populous Island. We actually beat Ireland and Jamaica in having more people all shoved on this little Island. In my head, I thought it was,
0: I, I pictured Long Island as having these, you know, beautiful like vineyards and uh, some some kind of open farm spaces. Is that not right? It did
1: oh, a okay. time Oh, okay. Before World War II, we were very much a farming community all up and down Long Island. After World War II, we just had thousands and thousands and thousands of people moving here. So they started building communities. Um, the east end where the tail is i'm on the north fork which is the northern part of the tail Mm -hmm. and we're probably one of the last rural areas and our area is known for vineyards used to be known for potatoes but now it's mostly vineyards um any immigrant group that came through new york city part of them settled on long island so we are a huge diverse community we have everyone from everywhere all over the island so it's not unusual to walk down the street um, particularly when you go what we call up the island from the north floor and just hear a multitude of languages and see a multitude of people i mean we have we have people from africa who are moving into parts of uh the nassau county in the south part we have large groups of people from Central and South America who've moved in. We have lots and lots of people from India who moved into northern Nassau County, um, Asians, you name it. Every place in the world, we have a cluster someplace, uh, more than a cluster, all over the island. That's probably very exciting for somebody who's an historian. It it is, but it, that's a lot of it's modern from so 1940 onwards. So for me, I usually go for the back in time. I okay. don't have so much the modern stuff. So
0: I gotcha. Obviously, um, Long Island plays a key role in your book. You said that the great multicultural population of Long Island has exploded since World War II. But we're talking about a time before that. Can you tell us a bit about uh, Long Island's history and the people who maybe originally settled there? Sure. Long
1: Island was settled in two parts. Um, The western end was settled by the Dutch around 1625. And the east end was settled um, by the English in 1640. So my area was settled by the English as well as the South Fork at the same time in 1640. And we were actually an outgrowth. In Southville, we were an outgrowth of the New Haven colonies of Connecticut. Oh. So we were settled really very early in time, probably like this seventh colony ever kind of thing on the, on the East coast by the English. So we were, we were settled very early in time and we remained a fishing and farming community for centuries, actually, all the way up to almost the modern time and Eventually, the English went and they conquered the Dutch, and we grabbed New York City, and we became a colony of England. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had people who called me and asked me about the history of something or another, and they said an early date, but they said, "Yep, but New York City said our laws predate New York State's existence." So I mean. Long Island was laid out by the English before New York State came into existence. Our government and the way that we laid out our counties and our mm-hmm. different municipalities are mostly all done before the revolution. So how long, how, how long would it
0: have taken someone, Free Revolution, uh, to travel from Long Island to New York City?
1: It could take a day, but you okay. wouldn't be going by roads. You would right. be going by boat so we have little boats that go up and down Long Island called Coasterments. And you would have hopped on a Coasterman and you would have sailed into the city, done whatever you needed, and then come back out on the next boat. So you could do a weekend in the city up here from the 1600s down until 1900. Um, the Long Island Railroad is built and takes care of the whole length of the island by 1844. And then they eventually build little spurs off of it to connect the north shore and the south shore okay so um you know pretty well integrated we don't had a lot of roads early on that doesn't come until later because our soil is very sandy oh. so things didn't stand up very well road wise
0: right that's fairly early for railroads isn't it? 1844
1: well not not, not okay. particularly you're thinking more railroad the robber barons and those guys and that's yeah. you know really, 1890s 1880s 1890s right so if you think about new york city you have a concentrated amount of people Mm -hmm. don't have farms so they have no way to feed themselves Uh so long island becomes their farm and their garden so all the farmers out here are producing crops for themselves and then shipping for profit up to new york city and they're going to ship by boat and then these guys say you know something we could get the railroad and send it all in by railroad too. So we start sending things in both ways. Okay, by ship and by railroad. And we're actually close enough that we can ship to not only Connecticut, but also to Boston and Providence and a lot of other areas here. So we have a couple of different markets that the North Fork would be able to keep.
0: Okay, so you mentioned that you can travel to Long Island as early as 1844 uh, by train and obviously by boat. You mentioned the Coasterman. Now I'm going to pivot to prohibition Uh, i think most of my listeners will know about the volstead act but let's give us a short uh refresher on prohibition and then tell us how the average citizen on long island might have felt about the ban on alcohol okay so big question sorry it
1: is a big question um the act is named after andrew volstead of minnesota and temperance supporters temperance is Uh, people who wanted you to not drink so much or not drink at all and that starts in the 1820s and the temperance supporters by 1917 managed to get language into an agricultural bill in order to ban the sales liquor to soldiers and then by 1919 they managed to get language into congress to say nobody drinks anywhere at all okay The, the demon rum okay um what what they felt, and it kind of blends in with anti-immigration stuff as well, they felt that these foreigners coming in were going to drink their wages away and dump their large families onto the backs of hard-working Americans. Anyway, so 1920, all of a sudden, we're going to experiment to make sure that we can become the godliest nation in the world, the nation where... Nobody drinks. We're hardworking. We're going to take over the world because we're American
0: and great. But how did the average citizen on Long Island feel about this ban on
1: alcohol? They were thirsty. <laughs> Actually, you know, for the average person, they just simply uh, accepted that that it is as it is. You know, the government's banning this. Okay, it's another thing, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is when. They- the prohibition goes into effect if you still have booze in your house you could keep drinking it so people like just like we did with the pandemic everybody ran out and bought as much as they could supply wise and shoved it away Mm -hmm. right but as soon as that goes away now you're stuck Mm -hmm. so that's when we start getting smuggling happening and it's interesting in that at first it's a lark for people to smuggle in things It's kind of fun. But then the government starts to crack down on it and we start to get a much darker turn going in prohibition. We're starting to have organized crime, which wasn't organized at that time, actually start to step in to try and make a buck. So we start off with people like Rothstein. He comes in and he organizes neighborhood, you could call them neighborhood bully boys Mm -hmm. into going out. And buying cargoes of liquor, bringing them in on ships, and then bringing them up to the city for profit. These guys were, I can give you some numbers here. They were wearing $12 million a year in this business. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's, that is net. On average, they paid $200 a week to 100 employees. And the average store clerk would take $125 a week. They also paid $100,000 a week in graft to the police, federal agents, city and court officials, and still netted $12 million. Five pounds of coffee at this time period is 35 cents. Wow. $12 million is unbelievable fortune at that point in time. So Arnold Rothstein is the guy who kind of starts this. He's a gambler and he sees that thirst. Well, what happens is he starts to get a whole bunch of guys together. So we have people like, okay, a lot of these names probably mean more to me than to you, but uh, Arthur Simon Fledgenheim, he's known as Dutch Schultz. Mm. He's a guy who um, makes his money in bootlegging and the numbers racket. He starts off in the Bronx. We have Waxy Gordon. We have Little Augie Organ. We have Jack Legs Diamond. We have Salvatore Lucania, who's known as Charles Lucky Luciano. Uh, Meyer Jansky known as Meyer Lansky. We have Francesco Castellia, better known as Frank Costello. Joe Adonis, Vanny Higgins, Bugsy Siegel. They're all part of the same group of importers that all get together to do this all over the New York metropolitan area, particularly Long Island. We only missed Al Capone because he moved to Chicago the year before Prohibition started. He would have been part of this group too. So it it's a little dark. Yeah. Well, and and
0: I'm listening to these names. They're not all Italians. It's a no. Mix.
1: It's a mix. We have people from not only the Italian but Jewish and Irish mafias there's different groups of you know these organized crime and yeah these these guys are a mixture of all of them um Dutch Schultz Uh and um Arnold Rothstein are both Jewish German and they're part of this you know so yeah um, Vanny Higgins is an Irish guy so did they did they work together
0: or was it divided along racial lines.
1: yeah they were working together but against each other spending time knocking each other off you know okay that they were a mixture okay um some of them just a couple of the guys actually managed to to survive a long time um frank costello i think lasted until like into his 80s it was a few so there were some guys that really lasted a long time other guys not so much But these guys actually, to some extent, actually moved into South Pole to oversee what was going on. Oh. So they're here um, overseeing what's going on up and down the island. And they kind of spread out across the island to oversee operations. So
0: I bet that changed the culture of the island quite a bit. Not only do you have this criminal enterprise, but you have these criminals moving into this farming community.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it was also, it changes it in that, the, um, the people here are forced to cooperate with what's going on. We actually had two, two gentlemen, um, they've both passed since then, who remember these organized crime figures living down the street from the house. And one of them said, oh, I was just a little tight, Like I could go down there and they would let me shoot their automatic guns out of oh the yard. And he's like nine years old or less and he's doing this and he's like, Oh, it was great. I have three boys. I could
0: imagine they would have loved that. Um
1: <laughs> Yeah. So now now this is the criminal side. The other side, the federal government was just as violent if not worse. Hmm. All right. So if you were if you were driving home one evening. And a car, unlocked car with a guy in a suit, pulls up and says, pull over. And you go, "Now, He actually has the legal authority to kill you, to shoot you. And there's nothing anyone could do. Because in the performance of his job in actually enforcing the Bolstead Act, those federal officers are untouchables. Oh, So nobody could prosecute them. Now, it's interesting in that, and I might be jumping ahead on your questions, but it's interesting in that the Volstead Act is enforced by the federal government and by the Coast Guard. It is not enforced by local law enforcers. So the local local law enforcers have nothing to do with it. On Long Island, we do see the state police cooperating in helping as mm-hmm. well as the assistant district attorney. Mm-hmm. So if you're a local policeman, such as in Southhold, one of our local policemen was arrested under the Bolsted Act because his dad was a rum runner and he was storing the bulls on their property. Oh. So it happens.
0: Okay. So, so you mentioned rum running. And then what is the difference between rum running and
1: bootlegging? People use the terms interchangeably. But for me in this area, rum running is the movement of alcohol across the water. And okay. bootlegging is the movement of the alcohol across the land. It oh is goodness. used somewhat interchangeably by people. There's going to be people who are going to call you, and say she's wrong. It goes <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> that I had to come up with a definition. That's the definition that seems to be the most plausible in looking at the original.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, actually, that makes sense to me, too. I don't know. Run running, it seems like the, like, legging, it seems like that's going to be on land. Running, a rum runner could be a boat. I don't, to me, that makes more sense. Uh, yeah. So so how did this run well, now, Long Island's going to have both, right? Because you're going to have the people bringing it into the land, the rum runners bringing it in from.
1: Okay, so they're bringing it in from overseas, okay? okay. So what happens is we have the international waters and then the territorial waters of the U.S., so what happens is the oversea boats would come up to the territorial wars of the U.S. And they actually form a line there and it's called Rum Row. Okay. And it's a line that forms off of Long Island. And see, you know, you're taking notes. Is that there? Um, <laughs> and I pulled up a
0: map so I can see Long Island. So <laughs> is
1: Okay. So they actually, they actually, it starts out being, um, I think it's 12 miles out. And then they change it to like 23 miles out. They tried to. Give themselves a little more leeway to chase these guys. Hmm. So you actually have people lined up. The boats are coming from Canada, from Bermuda, from France, from Scotland, from all over the world to line up because our prohibition doesn't affect just us, it affects the international beverage industry. Think how much we import. It's like, Mm -hmm. my gosh, you know, all those poor guys in Scotland who make single malt, all of a sudden, there's no business, you know, Bermuda with rum, you name it. So we're getting all that booze that's coming into Canada and coming down here, or it's coming directly from all those different countries and then um, being picked up. So it's little boats would go out to Rum They would either buy for themselves or they would be, have an order that was already sent in and they would be picking it up for whoever their customers were. Uh-huh. And then they would race back to shore and try not to be noticed by the Coast Guard. Then they would either hide the booze on land here or they load it right up into a truck and start taking it up to the city. That's a lot of things going up to the city. There must be a lot of really thirsty people up there. I think so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I'm, I'm envisioning.
1: So how many ships would be on Remro? It changed. Okay. I don't think anybody ever took account of them. Okay. It would change. If a boat happened to stray into the territorial waters, then the Coast Guard would go after it. Ah. But those boats are preyed on. Not only did the Coast Guard go after boats on run route, but there were also pirates that were out there as well. And they would go onto a ship. They would murder everybody on the ship. And they would either let it drift in to the coastline or they would set it on fire and try and hide their deeds it's a very violent violent decline in our history yeah that's that's
0: terrifying so uh the coast guard was established in 1800
1: right and then but
0: how robust was it at this time
1: not very at all okay um they were outclassed by the rum runners originally uh the rum runners had speed and maneuverability on their side the coast guard boats were old mm-hmm. they were leftovers from the war um they're not really built for this kind of thing eventually the coast guard gets tired of it and they actually start to take a selection of some of the better rum running boats they capture and they <laughs> pull it into their own fleet so they could get after these guys but you know these guys aren't playing, so mm-hmm. The Coast Guard, like the, the federal agents on land, were untouchable. They had mounted on their ships machine guns. And they would gun down these run runners whenever they could. So they, they would go after them. And people on the North Fork, um, I've spoken to people who said, oh, yeah, we would hear the guns going off. And if it was close to shore, they would hide because they were afraid the bolts would get them or they would go up to the shore and watch the chase. Boom, boom. And then see what the guy was doing. I've had some good stories from from that, yeah. Oh, that, and they're in the book, I'm guessing. Yes. Oh. I've some, said some are in the book. There's some that, you know, I could only fit so much. They limit the number of stories I can tell. So I, I tell a lot. But fair. That's not fair. They shouldn't do that. Um, <laughs> one gentleman, he told me that he and his family heard the gun's going off. So they went up to the shore to see what was going on. Uh-huh. And they see the ring runner. And if the sun runner got caught, their boat would be seized. Right? Uh-huh. This guy didn't want to lose his boat. So he's throwing the booze overboard. And his um, his dad said, I know exactly where that's going to land. And that's actually reachable. So as the Coast Guard and the run runner move off, he gets in his rowboat. He rows out to the spot and starts diving. And he's bringing up the booze. And he puts it in the boat and he rows back to shore and the family grabs it and they rush to their house and they hide it in their house. So they've got all this booze now. One of the things to remember about prohibition is the second half of prohibition is actually the Great Depression. So they use that booze as money. He said, my very first trumpet I bought with a bottle of booze. We got a radio because we had booze. So people were trading it as if it was cash mm-hmm. in order to get the things that they needed at this point in time. So it's it's interesting how the economy works, right? How oh that, yeah, it works. Yeah, but, um, yeah. There's there's other stories that run along those lines too. That's fascinating. Yes. Uh, so
0: your book, I know, it contains a collection of all these fascinating stories. Would you care to share
1: a few of your favorites? So let's see. Judge George Furman was working overtime and into the night because the number of cases brought before his bench in the late fall of 1922 was quite a lot. Among these cases was William Gray, alias William Franklin of Manhattan. Gray was brought in front of the county court in Riverhead on charges of transporting liquor. He was arrested in Bayshore with a jug under his arm and he was openly selling the cooch as he worked his way down the street until he offered a quick drink to pro, uh, to the probation officer, Charles J. O'Dell, who was also walking down the street on business. Oh. So. So you so
0: he said he's, he's got a job. He's walking down the street and giving everybody a drink for a couple hey, bucks. Nicole, I'll give you a drink. <laughs> was he drinking on himself, I'm assuming?
1: Apparently, he was quite, quite drunk himself as he was doing <laughs> this. I can't imagine anyone would think, yeah, it's against the law. Let me walk down the street with a bottle of booze and offer people a drink. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so we also have Bruno Stefowitzk, who lived near a very nice and quiet place, the Riverhead Cemetery. A very quiet place. Mm. Sometime during the summer, there must have been a whiff of something in the air that led a police officer to discover that that Stepowitz was using a large still. And as he sat in his jail cell awaiting his trial, he started to worry about his house and its contents. But he was apparently unaware that all communications were monitored in and out of the jail. So driven by his worries, he wrote to his brother and said, I need you to move into my house while I'm in jail. I want you to remember to stay away from the barrel of whiskey that I made because it's so aging. Then he said, you know, somebody might have put poison in that whiskey barrel while I was away. So please be very careful of it. During the trial, Stefowitz discovered and protested that the situation is not as it appeared. I was using the still to make distilled water for my car. And the officer said, yeah, except we also found a quantity of whiskey mash and liquor in your possession. And then they brought out the letter he wrote to his brother asking him to look out for that.
0: <laughs> uh, criminals.
1: Criminals, you, know, you never know what these people say. They don't, they don't always think things through, which is like it's kind good of.
0: for the the good guys. Although it sounds like some of the good guys weren't necessarily so
1: good in this era. No, yeah, they, they weren't necessarily so great. Um, in Amagansett, which is out on the South Fork. A man is captured by officers. And as they're transporting him up to Riverhead for booking, the prisoner realized the car was going to pass his house in a community called Watermel. So the man leans forward to the officers and says, hey, can you stop so I can telephone my wife and let her know what happened? Surprisingly, the officers said, check, we'll stop at your house. Inside, the man calls his wife and said, could you telephone my brother? I got pinched and come down and tell him to bring bail. And she said, well, that's okay, but uh, your brother just phoned and he was pinched. He wants you to bail him out too. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, so I did not read the book because that's
0: not allowed for the fact or fiction game, but I did glance through it and I noticed this code book.
1: Um, yeah, that's the reason I wrote the book originally.
0: Tell me about how, how you stumbled upon it. Tell me the story of it. And what it is, too,
1: because listeners won't know. Um, There was a man who was one of our volunteers, dedicated volunteer, Don Borum. Wonderful, wonderful man, so smart. His family were staunch Methodists. And his grandfather was a fisherman working in Greenport, which is not too far away from the Oyster Ponds area. One day, his grandfather is hauling the nets up into the boat and a rum runner goes past being chased by a coast guard. And he sees something little fly out of the rum runner's boat and lands in his nets. So he just keeps pulling the net in. And when he gets the net up to him, he looks and he discovers a small pocket-sized loose-leaf notebook. And he flips through it and he sees it's actually a code book. There's actually codes on one side with what the codes mean on the other side. And he realizes that this code book is extremely valuable and could get him killed. Uh huh. Because if any of those organized crime guys find out he has it, he's a goner. So he hides the book. And I guess he realized that this was actually a wonderful piece of history because he never throws it out, he doesn't burn it, he just hangs on to it for years and years and years. And it passed through the family. Mm-hmm. Well, Don gets this book, inherits the book, and he says, piece of history, takes it to the historical society and says, here, piece of history. So my job as a manager of collections is I actually go through the whole collection and I put numbers on everything and I look at everything so I can put it into our computer program Mm -hmm. and find out what do we have. And I come across this book and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. And I talk to a friend of mine, he goes, oh. You gotta publish, you gotta publish it. There's somebody out there who probably has a telegram filled with just numbers and letters and doesn't know what it means. I have to publish this. But it's also a great way for a historian to find out how large an operation is. Those codes run from Canada all the way down to Florida in terms of places where these guys who pick up and that things Well, Mm -hmm. But it does concentrate most of its sites Long Island and a little bit into New Jersey and Delaware so it really is fascinating seeing how these codes work and what areas they encompass so I was all right I'm gonna write a book and I was talking to another friend and he said his name's Walter he said that's the most boring thing I've ever heard in my entire life Amy you can't just put out a code book that's boring Uh because could you rev it up a little bit with a couple of stories? Yeah, I guess I could do that. So when I went to the publisher, they said, Hole? and bigger." I was like, "Well, all right." You know, they said, "How about the East End?" Like, well, I could do the East End, and I said, "Well, you know, there's some really great stories all up and down in Suffolk County. Why don't just do the whole county?" They mm-hmm.
0: did. That's awesome. And and I, your book is. Okay. I didn't read it, but I did look through the pictures and, on um, it's, it's, it's short
1: little stories. You do quickie yeah. every time the kids are doing something and you right. are waiting for them.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's, it's, definitely... and then this code book is, it's big. It's like, let's see,
1: probably 20 pages, yeah. 30. It's, yeah. yeah. It is yeah. everything from you could, if you were going to order these, It has a whole listing of how much... Oh, an interesting thing about this time period. There's no two-way radios. So they can broadcast it, but there's no way to broadcast it back what's going on. And the radios are pretty big. I mean, there's a picture of the radio in the book if you look. And it's a big waist-high thing the size of a desk. So they're not that transportable, although they did manage to figure out how to stuff a couple of these things into the trunk of a car. Oh, so... They would actually broadcast out in code what a customer wants. You know, wants 12 cases of whiskey and three cases of rye and bring them a couple of cordials and some champagne for, you know, New Year's. Wow. And that's how they would figure out what they were going to be bringing back on the run runner. This is, this is part of the business side, not just, the, you know, the local guy mm-hmm. going, getting a couple of bottles for us, New Year's party. So... That's what the code is set up to be. The boat, if he had to broadcasting, I'm stuck. I'm being chased. I got to dump the blows. I put it here. I'm hiding in the fog near this particular buoy bow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Okay. So I would say something like G434 on my, I would broadcast that. And that means uh, go to any position of Block Island. You're safe judging weather. Uh, Yeah.
1: That's pretty neat. Yes. Now this was, um, the method of run running actually translated later on in time into the 1970s. We had a gentleman who was running top and he was basing it off of exactly the way the Run Runners was doing. Originally, he, he knew his history and he said, this will work for me. And he was bringing bales of marijuana in, doing the same thing until they caught him at it. Wow. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he would have, he would have left your code
0: book. If he'd just published just the code book. He, maybe he'll get it while he's in jail. <laughs> uh, yeah. So is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners uh, specifically about, you know, the, this area, the history, the rum running, any special stories or anything? I'm going to think of a hundred of them <laughs>
1: after i finish finished talking to you. Now that. <laughs> um, let's see, special stories, special stories. There's lots and lots and lots of stories from people. Um, It was a pretty elaborate setup. I remember reading one story about uh, a young man named Johnny who used to work in one of the brickyards as a teenager with uh, a, a group of his friends. And they were offered $750 a night to unload boxes of bees. They did not tell the owners of the brickyard. And they did not tell their parents because they were all like high school students, right? So, what are they going to do with the money? They can't bring it home. They're going to get in trouble. They can't tell the owners because they'll get in trouble that way too. So, they would take, they would unload, they would take the money, they would put it in cans and they buried it in on the beach. Not that everybody should run out to South and start digging at the beach. Yes. Yeah. Kids, as they needed the money, would dig the money up and use it. One of the guys became a golf pro. Oh. <laughs> He's living off that money, you know. He's doing quite well for himself. At one point in time, we had a huge wave of cars being stolen during Prohibition. Hmm. Because the um, Prohibition agents realized that the big touring cars, they were bringing up the booze. So they would start stopping these cars. And then... The guys needed more cars, so they would go out and steal the neighborhood cars in order to start transporting the booze because they didn't want to sink their money into buying cars every week. A lot of these cars would be sold at auction, so you could eventually get them back if you knew to go to the government auction. They would sell the cars and the boats. As the cops started noticing the car, they would move to moving trucks. They would hide the booze under trucks of potatoes. They would hide it under anything you could think of. Oh, you got fish? We're going to stick it in with the fish. You got, you know, a piano? We're going to put it in the piano box, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the cops were stopping. Well, I say the cops, but I'm talking about prohibition agents. They would stop and they would search to everything. Every once in a while, there was a shakeup on the East End because some of the Coast Guard officials were also in on it. Yeah.
0: How many of the, the authorities were on the tape too? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean who, we don't
1: know. Who's going but... to know, right? Right. You know, every once in a while, you read about somebody getting caught and getting thrown in jail for it. But we have no right. figure I've ever heard of. What surprised you the most
0: about rum running, Amy? The KKK. What?
1: Ooh, that surprises me. Tell me, tell me more. Long Island had the largest membership in the KKK. Outside of the South, it was huge up here. All right. Except we were not after people of African descent. It was the Catholics. The KKK actually decided a lot of their membership decided that prohibition was the right thing to do. And they were active in assisting the federal agents in catching run runners. They would lend their cars and their families to act as disguises for the federal agents to track because you see a car with a wife and kids in the back you're gonna think oh it's just a family guy out yeah the guy looks a little official but just a family out he could be the prohibition officer with somebody else's wife and kids in the car following a rum runner that's fascinating it it really it shocked me They would lend their cars, they would lend their license plates, they would lend their families, whatever it took. It was actually a gentleman named Ferdinand Downs, who was a member of the KKK, and he and his friends were playing vigilante in the evening and would chase down rum runners until they came across one guy who started shooting back at them. And Ferdinand actually was hanging out of the car on the running board and was shot and killed. And his friends didn't realize what was going on, and realized he was a little limp, so they called him in, and they took him to the doctor who said he's dead. It was the biggest funeral, miles, and they burned across the minister was part of the clan. they did it in full clan regalia. It was shocking, absolutely shocking. Now, are um, there are there images of these? Did you find images? I did not find images. All I saw was this big newspaper account about the the whole funeral so on and so forth. So it, I was just like, what? what? Oh, that is and surprising. Just the whole thing was just kind of mind boggling. I actually got the name Liquor Island from Reverend G.M. Brown of the Patchogue Methodist Church, who preached that Long Island happens to be the wettest spot in the entire country. I was like, like Liquor Island, what a great title. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect for
0: your book, too. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Liquor Island. Uh, wow. Okay. Well, Amy, that is some story. Um, actually, stories, lots of stories. Uh, I think it's time for us to play Fact or Fiction. Are you ready to give me my four choices? Okay. We're going to pause a moment, do a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be right back. Are you a toffee lover? Do you crave something sweet and delicious that you can indulge in guilt-free? Then you must try bell toffee. Bell toffee is made with only the finest ingredients, including creamery butter, pure cane sugar, and high-quality nuts. It's made in small batches in our kitchen in Lee Summit, Missouri to ensure the highest level of quality and freshness. And the best part? Bell toffee comes in a variety of flavors, so there's something for everyone. Milk, chocolate, almond, bourbon pecan, dark chocolate almond, and roasted hazelnut espresso. There's a flavor for every taste bud. Whether you're looking for a special treat for yourself or a unique gift for a loved one, Bell Toffee has got you covered. And with their easy online ordering and fast shipping, it's never been easier to enjoy delicious toffee whenever you want. So head over to belltoffee.com today to place your order and experience the sweet taste of Bell Toffee. Welcome back, listeners. I'm here with Amy Kasuga-Folk, the author of Rum Running in Suffolk County, Tales from Liquor Island, and she's just shared an unbelievable, but mostly true story about rum runners and bootleggers. She's agreed to give me four details from the story, one of which is a complete fabrication. Uh, all right, let's
1: hear her, Amy. Okay. The Volstead Act is named after Andrew Volstead of Minnesota. Oh. Two. Prohibition starts in 1917 for soldiers and 1920 for the rest of the nation. Okay. Three, temperate support gets its language from a highway bill to ban liquor to soldiers. Okay. 1920, women get the vote and the same year alcohol is banned. Which one of those four is incorrect? Oh. Okay. well, so That's the 1920
0: women get the vote. And And it's the same same year that alcohol is banned. Oh, these I should actually know these. Um, Okay. So I was surprised. This is a Volstead. I'm pretty sure he's from Minnesota.
1: I know. I mean, I'm pretty sure. And then the soldiers first. Uh, I'm not sure I've heard that. I did think it was interesting
0: because I know that George Washington paid his soldiers in rum during the Revolutionary War. So I thought that was fascinating. What was the third one again? Support for... Emperor support gets its language in a highway bill to ban liquor to soldiers. Get the language from that. Okay. And then when... Oh, this is embarrassing. I don't remember dates. Um, So let's see... I'm gonna say that the language was the
1: was the I think maybe they changed the language a little bit. So how'd I do? Well The temperance supporters actually got language in an agricultural bill. Okay. Not a highway bill. Oh (laughs) darn, I was hoping I was gonna fool you on that one. Good work. Good you listening. Do. Yeah, no, I mean.
0: <laughs> all right. So so the others are, are true then. Yeah, they're all true. They're all true. All they're four are true. true. Well, Except well, for the language was from the agricultural bill. Not the highway bill. Not the highway bill. Woo, that's a tricky one. Okay. Yeah. great well, <laughs> then. Yeah, you
1: added that's great. <laughs> so, um, all right i didn't have to tell you fiction during our talk it's just you have to remember what i said i know that's why i said it's not fair that you're taking notes uh,
0: <laughs> my notes aren't that specific i i i listen better when i'm writing it doesn't matter what i've you know i've, I I've written dope. run road 12 miles out pirates but, and i that won't make any sense to me later but uh <laughs> So, well, thank thanks. you so much, Amy. This was You're a lot welcome. of fun. I had a great time. So <laughs> Good. You did a great job. You're a great storyteller. Um, oh, thank you. Thanks again for participating on my show. I've posted a link to Run Running in Suffolk County on fact or fiction podcast.com as well as on the Fact or Fiction Facebook page. I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, I'm going to start reading bits and pieces of it right away. And Amy's right. It's got like little little vignettes throughout. So it's, it's a good thing to read just occasionally. You know, it's just kind of fun, interesting little story. I'll be back soon with another episode of Fact or Fiction. And until then, listen carefully because it's tricky to know if something is fact or fiction. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Fact or Fiction, a mostly true crime history podcast. You can find relevant images and sources on factorfictionpodcast.com. Say hello to us on our Fact or Fiction Facebook page, and we're now on Instagram at MostlyTrueCrime. Music for this episode was provided by Nick Wiley.
1: Fact or Fiction is a Maxman Labs production. Goodbye.